Yes, Honest Actors is back with brand new episodes every Friday. To help me continue releasing new episodes without a sponsor, or to say thanks for your favourite old ones, click the support link in the episode description. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. It's a one-off, feeling generous, good deed for the day sort of thing. Think of it as bumping into me and buying me a drink. To find out more, click the support link. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Uh, yeah, mine's a large red. I hate those guys. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, my name is Joe McGann and you are listening to the Honest Actors Podcast. Hello, my name is Jonathan Harden and this is the Honest Actors Podcast, Series 2. Sponsored by TodayTix. If you want great offers on theatre tickets, access to day seats on your mobile and exclusive front row lotteries, you need TodayTix, the ticketing app that lets you see theatre differently. To get tickets with no queues and no fuss, download TodayTix now on the App Store and Google Play. Here is episode three with Joe McGann. Enjoy. First of all, thanks very much for your time. Um, I'm going to start as I always do with the question, how did you get into acting? Um, Liverpool in the 60s, when I was growing up, 60s and 70s, was like the cultural centre of the universe. Everyone in the world knew where my hometown was because of the Beatles. And I like to think because of Shankly and the football team as well. Um, (laughs) But what it did in Liverpool, there was an explosion of, I mean, there's always been talent there, but there was an explosion of Something that's essentially, like, it, I find it's essentially Irish, my background's Irish. In, in Ireland, when you go to see a play or a theatre piece, there's the feeling like, like the O'Caseys and the, even the Wilds and all of these people, it's, there's, there's the, the notion that they still belong to the people. It's in the culture. Mm-hmm. It, it's not highbrow. What I'm saying is, it was never, there was never a split between, I used to go to football dressing rooms, judo dressing rooms, boxing dressing rooms, and then straight into dressing room dressing rooms, like kind of theatre dressing rooms. And there was never any Mickey taken. It was always part of the, you know, life experience. The Everyman Theatre was less than a mile from our house, uh, just down the road. And this is one of the reasons. I mean, I had a fantastic youth theatre. This is why, from this, from round our area, you got me and my brothers. You got Dave Morrissey. You got Ian Hart. You got Mickey Stark. It was it was our youth club. So from an early age, I mean, I, the reason I went the reason I went to the youth theatre in the first place was because I was taken for passing my eleven plus. I was taken to the theatre as a treat by a family friend, not by one of the, it was a family friend who, who worked at the school. And uh, he took me to see Arnold Ridley's Ghost Train. Arnold Ridley from uh, Dad's Army, the old fella. He wrote a play called Ghost Train, which has got a fantastic uh, effect in it, you know, where you see this ghost train going past the dressing room. And I was like, oh my God, how did they do that? I was completely and utterly transfixed. And it's absolutely true to say it was the only thing before or since I've ever pointed my finger at and said, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. I want to be involved in that. Now, at the time, I wasn't, didn't necessarily mean as an actor. I just wanted, I, I wanted to be involved in making 
make-believe, if you like, with my, my, my time as a kid. But also because I, I was taken backstage at, at, at the time and they were getting ready for another show. It was a matinee I was in, they were getting ready for another show. So I could see welding going on. I remember seeing all the sparks everywhere and woodwork and stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, this is really kind of industry. I mean, I'd been to my dad's factory and I'd seen the same things. And so I thought there's loads of people here working and they all seem to be working to the same thing. And that pretty much was what captured me. Um, I, I, I said to my mum, I want, I want to be an actor. Mum was always kind of, she loved, she used to tell us about acting, who was a good actor and who was a bad actor, in her opinion, <laughs> in the films we were watching. And, oh, he's a good actor because I like the way he did that. And we used to discuss it at home. So I had an idea, I knew that it was a job, I knew that it was a, a way to make a living. Um, but I, I utterly fell in love with it that first night at the theatre. It sounds so showbiz, but it's 100% it's true. I, I never, I've never looked back from that, that position. I also did something I recognised as a kid that it would suit me. I have got, I'm, I'm one of these, I was one of these kids and I still am as, a, as an adult. I'm, I've got a butterfly mind. I've got, I, I'm, I'm, I can be deeply into something to the exclusion of everything else and then drop that and just land on something else and drop that and land on something else. Now, it's not great for continuity in life, but it's perfect for an actor. It's perfect for an actor. You know, and I kind of knew that and I recognised that as a young kid, you know. So, this is a different question to what I'd normally ask at this mm -hmm. point just because it feels like, in a way, what you're saying is, there was never any resistance to you being an actor. Certainly from outside within your family, there was never any kind of sense that, why is, why is, why is, why is Joe an actor? Well, the, but, to an extent there was. I mean, to an extent there was like, why don't you get a proper job? There was this and that, those <laughs> kind of cliches. But there was also, we, we, you know, that our generation, my mum and dad, you know, some mum was, dad was slightly older than mum, but coming back from the war, the, you know, that generation, our generation, you know, the second wave of the baby boomers, if you like, what was passed down to us, because things had changed so much, what was passed down to us socially in, you know, in the zeitgeist was what, you, what kids told their, what parents told their kids was find something you love and do that. Find something you love and do that because already the kind of jobs for life thing was breaking down, you know, in working class. My dad would, had been made redundant from a factory for, after 30 years, you know, for never having missed a day's work because he got a heart condition. It killed him. So we knew those things were, were breaking down. So it was a matter of do whatever you can get out there, jobs were already dwindling and stuff, so find yourself something that makes you happy, that was the thing. So it, was, it wasn't that there was no resistance or any kind of actual genuine, yeah, go great, be an actor, encouragement. It was do whatever makes you happy. And was there any, this was the question I was going to ask, was there any, uh, ever any internal moment where you started to waver and thought, you know what, maybe this isn't for me, maybe I'm just doing this because it's there, it's a mile down the road, maybe I want to do something else, whether it's football or boxing or judo or something in, you know, some other industry. Was there ever a point personally for you where you thought, oh, this isn't for me? Not that I can recall. I mean, there were times, there were times when I thought, well, maybe I should go and do that because, you know, I, I, I could have gone in other directions. I could have gone, you know, I was being encouraged towards Oxbridge. I was being encouraged, you know, I, I was doing well. But then I was at a Jesuit school and they like kind of completely cured me of the notion of ever wanting to be involved in education ever again. You know what I mean? So they just <laughs> absolutely... They're great at that. Oh. They're foul. I mean, I was one of those, because I was an inner city kid who won a scholarship, they did that whole thing about trying to tell me I had a vocation. And I kind of, they, you know, I, you can only, your only chance is this. And I was like resisting it all. Turns out you did, just wasn't necessarily. Yeah, exactly. You know, but they, they, they wanted me to be a Jesuit and I, I just wasn't having it. So I, I mean, I, I, I came to London when I was 17. I, I got out of school. I came to London just a couple of days after my 17th birthday, ostensibly for a year, because I'd actually gone and got my A-levels. I'd gone to 
uh, at the higher education college once I'd gone out from under the Jesuits and I'd got my A-levels. And uh, I was going to go ostensibly for a year because I actually got a place, I got promised a place in Manchester to do drama in English, you know, that wonderful drama course there. But I came down to London and I didn't go back. I got a record deal and I got like kind of involved in rock and roll and, and music and stuff for a little while, so I just didn't go back. So we, you know, it, it was... It, I was sidelined into that side, that side of things. It was great for a couple of years, two, three years, um, which I, I really enjoyed, but I wanted to get back into acting. So, so how did you get back in then? What was the well, transition? It, the, I got off, I started doing uh, auditions for acting musicians. And whenever there was any open or I could get in, I used to go along. And uh, in the meantime, Paul had come down to RADA. Mark had um, been given his equity card in Liverpool, my brother Mark, for, by Ken Campbell for doing Lennon. So, we were getting the name as like, oh, those, act those McGann lads, you know. So, blah, yeah. blah, blah. so that, that was coming. Anyway, I went to, to this, for this audition of Piccadilly Theatre. I remember standing on stage with my guitar playing a couple of country songs for this, this thing, Pump Boys and Dinettes, to be an actor musician. And the director, Rob Walker, said, no, nah, I don't want you for this. And I was like, okay, that's straight. He went, no, no, so, sorry for being rude. So, sorry for being rude. He said, no, I've got something else which I want to do. You know, will you do that? And so I went to meet him for a beer afterwards and he spoke to him about a show called Yakety Yak, which he was trying to put together for the half moon. Uh, and he said, basically what I'm doing is I'm going to put a script together around the songs of Libra and Stoller. Do you fancy doing it? He said, I've got the band, the Darts, um, to, 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 to be the band in the show and they're, they're all going to act. And I said, that sounds great. And he said, who else can we use? I said, well, there's my brothers, you know, they, 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 they all play. And, and he said, oh, I don't know whether they can play. But as it happened, the day after that was, uh, we all had the same agent then, and, and she was having a, a big party. And we were playing, we were the band. And so Rob Walker came along and saw us do this gig. And, and Rob came up afterwards and said, right, you've all got the job. So the four of us, this was Stephen's, my brother, Stephen, the youngest brother. It was his first job of any kind, you know. And we had the most ridiculous fun putting this show on put it on by the skin of the teeth tiny little theatre and it transferred from the east end to the west end we got it we, we, we went into the dominion so we, we we ran it up to christmas the christmas show and we opened in the dominion so it launched us all like i say Stephen, all of a sudden his first ever job of any kind he comes straight from doing his a level straight into yak to yak so all of a sudden we were established in, in this is 1982 83 we you know, Paul had already, like I say, he'd, he'd, he'd won a prize at Rather, and Mark had already done Lennon to great acclaim. And we, I was known a bit in the music, Stephen was known, known from anywhere, but all of a sudden we were launched. There's a bit of a jump here, which is uh, usually with the podcast beyond the kind of how did you get into it, there's very little opportunity to talk about jobs, or rather um, I discourage people from... Um, talking then about specific jobs throughout their career because mm. the idea is, is more the kind of general context we all mm. work in. Mm. But in order to kind of uh, help identify not just who you are but, but the kind of work that you like to do or the mm. kind of actor you would like to be seen as, I ask, what's the job you're most proud of? One of, one of the things that I think is, is vital about being an actor and think the most important thing about our job and it always kind of gives its status is to put new work in front of people. I've always liked new work. I mean, the Every Man in Liverpool was always putting new work on. When I came to London, it was always about the Royal Court for me. I don't think we do enough new work. A few years ago, I got a call from Bill Kenwright and he said to me, he was then running the Liverpool Every Man and Playhouse and the Playhouse was in danger of going dark. And he said, would, you, would I come up and do a play for Equity Minimum when I was doing a break in the series? I said, yeah, sure. I said, I'm going to do something. Let's do something new. So he sent me a couple of plays. And I, the first play I read, I just absolutely loved it. I went, yes, I want to do this. 
And I called him back and I said, yeah, we want, I want to do one, one fine day. And he said, um, oh, that's brave of you. I said, why? He said, because it's a one-man show. And I hadn't realised, because all the characters in it, I, I genuinely hadn't realised that, you know, I mean, I still wanted to do it because, because of what was written. Yeah, because you loved it. Yeah, but I put all the different there. characters, but I, it, was a one, it was just me, the one man play, and I kind of went, all right then. Um, and Having at that point done a one-man show before? No, I never had, right. never had. I mean, so, you know, I've been on stage lots of, lots of, lots of times before, and I've done long plays before, but I'd never done a one-man play. Um, but I was... You know, we had we went up the main Bob Thompson in a rehearsal room on on our own, uh, and then a uh, script by Dennis Lumborg, and trying to cram a one man play into your head is, is is an interesting thing. But after a while, it becomes liberating. You know, I remember towards the end of rehearsals, I mean, the writer came into me and said, "Oh, that's gone really well, Joe." He said, "I'll just never know how you managed to kind of get thirty eight thousand words." And you asked, "Why did you say that?" <laughs> I don't want to know, you know, I really, really and, yeah. and, 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 but, you know, we, we, we went to Liverpool and, and uh, we opened at, at the Playhouse. It sold out for about, we extended the run there five weeks. And then Stephen Fry left Cellmates in the West End of London. Uh, the, theater, the show had to close, so I went with in one-man show. They asked, the ambassador said, would, you, would, you, would I take over? So I went into the second biggest theatre in the West End with a one-man show. But here's an interesting story as well. Um, I mean, apropos of something else about our business. The, I would, I'd just done something on TV, I can't remember what it was, which was being reviewed. I was, I was holding a copy of Time Out, the magazine, who were, there was a big article about the theatre piece, you know, about me taking over from Stephen Fry and, and a lovely, a purple prose review of what I was doing and said how, how good I was as an actor. In the back of the same magazine, in the TV section, right, in the TV review, it said I couldn't walk and act at the same time. <coughs> Right, and it's in the same magazine. It takes pride of place in my, in, in, in my you know, memorabilia because it just shows you what this business is like. It shows you what range you've got as well. Well, you know, or you can not, <laughs> as the case may be. You know, not as the case may be. But, that, but I remember thinking then, oh, there's an object lesson here. There really is. Because I was desperately trying to... Do you read reviews? I mean, obviously, you, yeah. you, you read them afterwards. Do you read them in, in, in the process of doing what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's part of it. I mean, if you, what are you trying to do? I mean, what's this? I don't know I don't read them, do you? Yes, you do. Everybody do you, do you believe when, I mean, because no. I've I, I worked with people who say they don't read them and no. then you say, have you seen it? And then, oh, I don't, no, no, I haven't no. seen it. No, no, I never believe them. You never? Know, never believe them. No, no, I don't believe there's anyone who doesn't read a review. Have you ever read one and thought, I shouldn't have read, shouldn't have read that? Yeah, a couple of times, but you've got to take the rough with the smooth. I mean, who, who wouldn't read them? I mean, what, I don't see, I don't get that there's an argument against what are we doing in the end? What's the contract here? I mean, so the, the, the peculiar thing about being an actor among, is different to any other artist. Like, as a musician, I can practice my guitar. Or I can go and you know, play the drums, or I can program some keyboards. As an actor, you can't practice your art on your own. And so, read it to see how you're coming across. Read it to see if choices you're making are blurring, for instance, or blurring the text of the play, or blurring that you are doing something which is getting in the way of the understanding of the play. That can be that can come from the information in reviews. You know, it can also. It, it can I, know, also I know directors would disagree. Yeah, but that, directors always <laughs> will. Director, yeah, but directors are, not, are never there. Once you're doing the show, directors have gone. Yeah. You know, it's very very rare that you get a director who does the after sales service. So by that token, then watching yourself on screen mm. is less useful because it's already done. It's in the can. Yeah. It can't be changed. Do you watch yourself? Do you enjoy watching yourself? I don't enjoy it. Um, I don't enjoy it because it's unnatural, isn't it? I mean, so, you know, it's, it, 
it's the visual equivalent of hearing your voice on tape for the first time. You know, you think, Jesus, is that me? You know, it's like it's the same with watching the back of your own head walking away from yourself. You're not, you're not supposed to see that. Do you know, it's, it's like there's an existential crisis which you, comes in. You're somewhere. breaking the laws of physics there. It's like casting crew screenings, you know what I mean? I sit there and I'm like, oh. yeah. <laughs> I just, I, How far can you slide down a cinemature is often the question in my head of casting yeah, crew screenings. I can actually lie on the floor in between and go um, to sleep. You know. Question then going back to the very start of that process. So mm. we've talked a lot about, or talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the end game, the getting the job, the being reviewed, the watching yourself back, but um, auditions, mm -hmm. like way, way, way earlier in that process. Do you enjoy auditions? Occasionally. Occasionally, I enjoy them. So, what's the what 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 dictates whether or not you do? Whether I nail it or not, whether I do what I think is what I uh, I do what I think. Also, I mean, it's not just about me. It's also this is I think this is just midlife crisis or or, or, or late middle age, you know, attitude. Whether people are actually have professional courtesy, I will enjoy, you know, uh, and that continues after the audition. You know, sort of how, how many, I mean, it, it, I don't know of another so-called industry or another so-called job or, or a group of people who can more than 50% of the time, I'd go, to, I'd go as far as to say 75% of the time, if you don't get the job that you've auditioned for, you don't hear a thing. Now that, even at, you know, a good level, is more common than not. What kind of business is that? What kind of rudeness? So... That becoming more and more of a bugbear kind of can slightly take away, you know, the enjoyment of auditions. But no, I, I kind of like the audition. I, I, as I, I might have touched on before, I've never bought a lottery ticket. I'm not a gambling man. I've not, it just doesn't appeal to me, that side of things. So it's nearest I get to kind of living on the edge. It's also a truism. You very, very, you, you rarely, if ever, audition for the lead. The leads are usually given. Awarded, they, and usually when you audition for leads, you know it's probably out on offer to someone else anyway. Exactly, right. That's the way it goes. So, so that's that's how it is. So if you're auditioning at all, you're auditioning for one of the the, the minor parts or, or 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 you know sort of whatever supporting leads. So it's a matter of fitting in. It's a matter of knowing where you're going to fit in because you don't want to be sticking out. And it's also I'm six foot three, six foot four. You know what I mean? So so I just think to myself, okay, who's around here? How tall are the actresses? I ain't going to get this. I mean, you know, I I still I still think that. Uh, Actors can maintain and, and keep a sense of power, control, by remembering that you don't have to take every audition. I'll read stuff if it embarrasses me to read it. I ain't going to the audition. I don't care how skint I am or I don't care how much that you know, you know, the director wants to work with. You know what I mean? I, I don't care if it's Polyakov or whomever. You know what I mean? I really, really don't. If it looks like rubbish to me, I'll just give them that thank you. It's not for me. You know, because I don't want to go. I don't want to feel that gorge rising of the embarrassment thinking this is shite. You know, like, as you're doing it. I don't want to go there. Buy tickets to the best theatre in London the new way. With the TodayTix app, getting great offers and access to exclusive tickets has never been easier. With TodayTix Rush, you won't have to queue at the box office for hours to get day seats, and you can access big savings with their lotteries for shows like Kinky Boots and The Bodyguard. Download TodayTix, the theatre ticket app, from the App Store and Google Play, and see theatre differently. Um... So, this is a question, or uh, something that comes up in nearly every interview. An agent once said to me, an agent I'm no longer represented by, I'm glad to say. But he once said, actors are only ever truly happy in the five minutes after they get the call to say they've got a job. And after that five minutes, the self-doubt sets in. Do you recognise any of that in yourself? And if you don't, what happens to you five minutes 
after you get the call? Um, I know I know exactly what what's going on there. I mean, sort of, it's like that old actor's joke, isn't it? You know, sort of, oh, I've got a job, marvelous, marvelous. What times break? You know, actors, who, you know, actors who moan about like kind of. I, I understand it from that, that point of view, and and you know, cliches are not cliches without a, a grain of truth. Um, now, my, I wouldn't say that the disappointment sets in like that. I, if, I, if I've got work to do and I've got, I'm going to be gainfully employed, um, I'll be happy about it. I don't live to work. That's what it is. You know what I mean? I work to live. And although I love what I do and I love new work and I think drama's important, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not the most important thing in the world. You know, it, it, so... The disappointment tends, if I get disappointed about this industry, it tends to be with particular people or particular attitudes, you know, so it's not about my lot because I've had good and bad, you know, I've had like kind of good side of it and I believe it'll still balance out and I can still walk and talk reasonably well without dribbling and so I can, st I can carry on working and that's my intention to do, you know, sort of, I, I was working with Keith Baxter and Bill Gaunt both in their 80s and and you know, people ask them, you know, what keeps them young, and they say this. Working on absolutely, you know, you get into that dressing room, uh, rehearsal room, rather first day, and everyone's on an even, even keel. And it's a cooperative art, you know, and that's that's what gives gives me the joy. So, um, no, I get disappointed in people rather than the job itself. Okay, there's mm -hmm. a couple of things I want to come back to in that, sure. but for the moment, uh, because you've said, but you know, uh, working to live rather than living to work. Yeah. What's the longest? Uh, to memory that you've gone without being able to work as an actor? Probably about seven or eight months. How does that then feel? Even though you, you say you don't live to work, mm. um, does that become about more than just not being able to pay bills? Is there a different uh, psychological impact of that? Yes, of course there is. I mean, so, you know, it's back to this audition thing. I mean, you, the self-doubt starts to come in about what you're doing. Like you think to yourself, I tend to, I've lost track of the amount of times that I've thought to myself, you know, I should have bought a cab, I should have done this, I should have done that, you know, <laughs> like kind of, or a news agent yeah. or this or that. I've lost count of the times that I've done that, I've had that conversation with myself. But something about the job, I've, I've, I had a production company in my own for 10 years, after a while, Things started happening around the office. A little audition would come up, and it'd be for some, for some little play somewhere, but a new play. And so I'd go and do it because that's what I want to do. Yeah. I, I will. I will drop the book even, you know, which is unusual. I'll drop the book and go and do the acting job. You know, acting is one of the very few things that make me put the crossword down or put the. Yeah. You know, that's it's that way around. I, I, I've never really seriously considered giving up. I've, I've been pissed off with it. And I railed against it. And then the phones rang with the job, and I'm like, oh, hi. <laughs> I could be in the depths of depression. I could be in the depths of, like, kind of... Yeah, if you'd been a black taxi driver, you would have just dropped someone off mid midway to their destination and thought, I'm, 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 set, I'm, I'm done with this. Yeah, I've yeah. got an audition. Exactly. Yeah. That's, the way it, that's the way it would have been. You know, so, and, and so, therefore, I'm unreliable for anybody else. So, in those moments where you are kind of having those conversations like I should have bought a cab, I should have bought mm. a these agents, whatever those are. Mm. For me, it's I should have become a carpenter, like mm. whatever it is. Um, do you find it difficult in those moments to, be, to celebrate friends' successes? 
I mean, particularly when you have you have uh, brothers that are in the industry as well, and I'm sure it goes swings and roundabouts. Sometimes you're working, sometimes they're not, yeah, yeah. vice versa. Do you find that? Um, do you take solace in other people doing well, or is it something that makes you feel worse about yourself? I love it when actors get money. I love it when actors get rich <laughs> and get well. I really, really love it, whoever they are, whoever they are. It doesn't stop them, however. It doesn't stop me, however, in my head, um, thinking, bitch. You know what I mean? But I won't say it. I won't say it. No, of course. But it's there. I mean, that's the truth of the matter. Is you think, because you can't help but, but uh, you know, existentially ask yourself, well, why not me? Why? Did... Because you'd be a dickhead if you didn't think those things. You, you, you'd be an absolute, like, you know, a brainless twerp if you didn't kind of go round that, that side of things. So when I consider that, I think, well, that's not going to get you anywhere. You know, sort of, it, it's really not. So you just have to, you have to process it. Yeah, it happens. It happens, and you think, huh. you know, there's that kind of you fight to kind of make a smile because you are happy for your mate. But also at the same time, it's throwing your particular problems at that moment into sharp relief, isn't it? You know, by, by their success. But it's happened the other way around too. So, yeah. um, do you still do anything? I mean, when you're not working as an actor, I assume when you were when you were starting out like 35 years ago, there was a lot of music still happening. There was bits and pieces. Mm. Um, then you talked about your production company. What kind of things have you done to pay the bills in between acting jobs? And are there any things you still do on the side to kind of supplement? I've had businesses and stuff like that and I've kind of gone along with that I've, I've got friends who are in uh, tree surgery gardening and stuff and I will go and help them from time to time and stuff like that. Um, so we talked a lot about I think there's a good sense emerging of why you do what you do mm-hmm. and why you like doing what you do but what is the hardest thing about being an actor um, what's the most difficult thing uh, I suppose it's fitting in with people outside of the business just the practical angle of trying to make arrangements with people, trying to make, uh, for instance, I was I was supposed to go uh, tomorrow to Kew Gardens with a few friends of mine. We've had it organised for about four or five weeks, a big gang of us going from Brighton. Of course, you know what I'm going to say. I've got yep. a job. Yep. So I, I, and I just booked it on the train this morning, so I can't go. And that, it's that, you know, sort of, and my mum, you know, sort of, all, all she wants every, every year around her birthday is a picture of us all together, right? Good luck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's, there was 12 years, yeah. 12 birthdays, where there was at least one of us missing. Okay, she yeah. never, she didn't have for 12 years a full family photograph because it's like knitting fog, trying to get us all together, you know, and because that, that's, that's about the hardest thing. Plus the fact that, you know, you don't have a career in front of you. You have possibilities in front of you. Your career is what you've done. This is why people are, oh, you know, it's, it's good for my career. I don't think you'll find you've got one. You know, you, you, you know it's, it's, that's, it's your CV's your career. You don't know what you're doing next year. Nobody does. Just because you've, you, you've kind of, a couple of things you brought up there, you talked about um, friends outside of acting. What, what it's, do it's non-actor difficult. friends make of it? It's difficult sometimes. It's difficult to explain to anybody outside. It's difficult to explain to yourself sometimes. Isn't it? I mean, let's face it. It's, dif- it's difficult to, to ex- you, you can accept that you, you want to do it, but you can't give cogent, translatable reasons, you know, to people go, okay. Um, my friends, they know what, I know, I know, they know. I've been doing what I do for a long time, and they accept now. So I have ways of saying, um, I, I just say in theory. You know, how would you like to come on to something? Yeah, in theory. Um, you've kind of uh, handed at this anyway. You said that perhaps you're a bit tall, perhaps mm. you're not posh enough for current mm-hmm. trends. 
do you see the industry changing around you um, that it might not be so easy or it might not easy is the wrong word accessible for a kid in a similar circumstance to yours growing up in 2016 there was that brief period in the 80s like late 70s early 80s where people like us got through where there were grants available where there were things like that you know Paul would never have been able to go to Rada without getting a discretionary grant my mum and dad could never have afforded that you know sort of the so it goes in trends, doesn't it? I mean, sort of, do you remember, just post-war, you know, even, even, even the Cockneys, like in, in these films, were all from RADA. You're terribly, terribly sad. You know, they all spoke like that, didn't they? You know, cool, blimey, a fiver, you must be an American. You know, it, it, was, it was those kind of things. So they were taken from the pool they have. Um, I had an actor one time, uh, a director it was, when he got drunk, you'll never play kings. Why? Because you're a commoner. Okay, mate. I mean, I've never been seen for Downton, even below stairs. Uh, you know, I've, I haven't had a sniff of an audition at the National for 14 years. Do you still write to people occasionally? Will you write to people under, yes, what, under what circumstances will you do that? Well, just sometimes if, if I find, if, I, if my agent, who's a good agent, um, uh, can't get me in to be seen or can't answer a question, if I say, why won't they see me? What is the problem? What is, you know, what is the criteria that is making them say, not only just no, but like repeatedly no. Not yeah. just, oh, let them come in and we'll see them for five minutes yeah. and then say no. Yeah. Which is easy, but no. There are policies, that, that there are strict no's, and, and, and so it smacks of certain, so I'll write and I'll ask. And I'll also write fan letters. If I see somebody being really, really good in something, and, and, and whether I know them or not, you know, I will commit it to paper and I'll write and I'll make sure I, I get it to them because I think, back to what we were talking about, reviews and stuff like that before, I think, in, particularly in this, in, in this country, and, and I'm going, going to go as far as to say it's particularly English Malays because it's different for those of, us of like different like backgrounds. And, and anyway, I've got three brothers who do it. We don't talk about what we're doing enough. We don't talk about our bit, and blah, blah, we, or, or we don't say, that was really good when you did that, and, and enter a discussion. We're all just supposed to kind of subscribe to this myth of, you know, it's all fine, and, and carry on, and, and, like, and, and, and be autonomous in our own world, and stuff like that. And there's not enough free, fair, and frank exchange between actors. And it's very important. You know, it really is important, because otherwise, how are you actually learning? Yeah. And the other thing uh, is, um, this and follows on to what I'm going to ask next, is you've talked about being interested in this, it's a biology of, mm. of the, the mind. mind yeah. So, um, do you think long term being an actor has a psychological impact? That kind of, whether it be the constant kind of uh, hard work rejection, the occasional having lots of money, having no money, do you think that that has a long term psychological impact? Yes, I do. Um, I think. All actors, be them successful or not, have to, to develop what were the coping strategies. The rejection itself, I mean, the rejection and being able to deal with that uh, on a constant basis would... Eight out of ten people wouldn't be able to do it. That's not big enough, so you, know, so you, you would find that out. You know, so I'd, I'd, probably, I'd probably be a terrible bricklayer. Do you understand what I mean? And I, but I would have to find that out for, for, for the various reasons. There are some, some people who are not suited to acting because of that, that to doing what we do for, because of that thing. Um, psychologically, it, it can affect you in other ways, full disclosure. Um, when I 
I had a little bit of a TV career going on, like drama stuff going on before I ever did the, the Upper Hand, which is the big comedy, I, you know, the comedy thing I did. I've only ever done one comedy, and that was it. Um, all of a sudden, the Upper Hand hits, and I can't go anywhere. I completely lost my anonymity. I lost my ability to be able to go and sit outside a cafe and and just watch people and stuff like this. I lost my ability to be able to get the tube to work because all that's there. That absolutely spanned me out mentally. It, you know, I, I had a propensity toward depression anyway, you know, it's, it's kind of in the family. Um, and it, it threw me into a, a period of my life which, you know, I'm glad I'm through, you know, sort of where I, I self-medicated beyond belief, you know what I mean, sort of it was all, booze was the only way I could kind of stop these feelings. But it's, it utterly spanned me out. I was clinically depressed, I was on anti antidepressants, I was in therapies, I was in stuff like this for a little while. And it took me a while just to kind of, to try and find out what real, of course, the worst thing is, is like, you love the job, I loved that job, it was great, I was working with, with, with a great many people, but then the more successful it became, I could, I literally couldn't go anywhere. And the bigger the disconnect as well between yeah. the public perception of, but you're doing yeah. so brilliantly. Exactly, and, and you, you know, you, even doctors, you must, be, you must be so happy. Even the doctors, I go to the doctors and say, I'm not doing well, oh snap out of it, you know, you're doing really well, and you think, okay, you know, and I was, I was feeling utterly, utterly wretched and, and bereft of the core. Um, and the way that I needed to kind of, that's when I did things like one fine day. I, the only way that I could kind of stop myself whilst I was out of work for like kind of, or, or whilst I was resting between series. If I'd, if I'd have taken all the time off between series and the upper hand and not worked, I'd have probably drunk myself to death. It's no exaggeration, yep. you know, because that's, that's how wretched I was feeling. But because I could do the work, and because of the other things we just touched on, because of that you know, sensitivity, getting out of yourself, you know, the, the big mistake is that actors are all ego, egotistical it's, and egocentric. If you are, you're not a very good actor. I mean, yes, you need to be able to get in touch with it, but you know, and, and so that got me through. Um, so does it psychologically affect you? Yes, it does. I mean, and in more than just the obvious ways, you know, I think that I spoke earlier on about Keith Baxter and, and Bill Gaunt in their 80s. They would both admit to being kinder people because of being active, because as they've got older and realised it's not so much about them, they've realised it's a team game. And so they've actually kind of developed more skills at being in the team rather than before it would have been, oh my God, I'm off on my own, doing, you know, doing my own thing and stuff. They've developed over the years. Um, it's quite sad though that that comes with experience because quite often you find the biggest ego in the room is the youngest person and the least ego in the room is the person who's been there doing it for 60 years. But quite. that's usually the way. There's a great rule though, um, who was it? An actor called Neil Cunningham, when I was starting out, he was brilliant, he was in Letters to Brazen and he's like that lovely actor. But he was lovely, he, you know, because I used to ask him loads of questions about this, he was terribly grand and, and all of this, he had that side of him. And he used to say, okay, in, there's always going to be at least one wanker in the rehearsal room, right? He said, if you can't see the wanker, it's you. Yeah. And I remember thinking, okay, and that's just, you know, it's true today as it ever absolutely was. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, um, and just let them be. It's somebody it's like it's like someone's turn to be the wanker. It's like someone's turn to be equity <laughs> depth, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's like it's. <laughs> it should be nominated on the first. Well, day. I think I'll so. be company wanker. Yeah, yeah, All right, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no problem. Yeah, I was yeah. wanker last time. You know. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go back to that young man arriving from mm. Liverpool, or coming out of that first show, 
uh, on the West End and gave a piece of advice. What kind of nuggets might you offer? Read scripts, read plays, read as many plays and as many scripts, completed film scripts and stuff like that that you can get your hands on. Understand about the whole of the art, not just what it means to be an actor. Understand, certainly the art of writing. Train yourself to be able to not just see your part in a story, not just to see the story, but to be able to see where that thing fits in the pantheon of everything else. Uh, that would be one, one bit of advice. And the other bit of advice would be slightly controversial this day and age. That younger actor then, mm. um, looking, if they were able to look at where you've ended up, what do you think they'd make of where you are now? in career terms? I think the young me would be kind of pretty happy actually because again, you know, I'm a pragmatist. I, I, I didn't ever think that I would be the best actor in the world. I think I would be most satisfied with the fact that I do get asked back by people. I don't just work with people once. I tend to work with them again and again, which says two things to me. That's not only I'm, I'm good at my job, but I'm good to work with. Good company member. Yeah. And that, that, I don't think you can put too fine a point on it. I'm very, very proud of being a good company member. So the last kind of, well, second last question uh, of the day is uh, somebody said to you a long time ago, you'll never play a king. Mm. If I was to make you, and uh, I'm not necessarily saying I'm a royalist in any way, but say I was to make you king of the industry, mm -hmm. um, fittingly in the equity boardroom, uh, for the day, and you could change anything, mm. what would you change? I'd have a moratorium on performing Shakespeare anywhere except the National and the RSC. <laughs> no reps allowed to do it. You know, so these, these, these two, two companies, and they can tour it, right? And for every, every theatre that wants to do, do Shakespeare, they need to do a new play instead. I think it would bring the industry on, bring the industry into the 21st century. It would make the industry cohesive. It would give more people chance. It would kickstart our culture. I love Shakespeare. You I, never play a king in that model. No, no, I mean, no, you've you just, you just ruined your chances yeah, of ever playing a king. You know, yeah, King Schming, you know what I mean? <laughs> if you speak, when I speak to people, I love the theatre and I go to the theatre and I loved it as a kid. When you speak to people, even erudite, interesting, smart people who don't go to the theatre, eight times out of ten, it'll be because when they were at school, they were taken to their local theatre to see an awfully fucking long, bad version of Shakespeare, and they just don't want to know. They think Shakespeare is for other people. They think that English language is for other people, not the likes of them. And they think it's an elite thing. And the only people that are keeping it like that is us. Last question of the day, um, bonus. Are you in anything at the minute? Um, right now, I have, uh, no, um, no. So that's it for a fortnight. I should take this opportunity, by the way, to acknowledge the three locations. Episode 1 with Noma Demesmany was recorded in a secret location in Soho. Episode 2, more importantly, was recorded at the office of the amazing writer Dara Carvel. So thank you, Dara, for that. And this one, episode 3, was recorded at Equity. So thanks to Equity for that. 
Before I go, just a reminder that the big giveaway closes on Thursday at 6pm. So your last few days to enter to win prizes worth over 500 quid, the Spotlight Annual Membership, the £50 Today text voucher, the digital subscription to the stage, the headshots with Ori Jones and the Honest Actors merchandise. Go to www.inanything.com forward slash giveaway. If you've already entered, make sure you've confirmed by clicking the link in the email you will have received. So check your junk mail folders and also make sure you've shared the shit out of your lucky link. Every time somebody clicks on your lucky link and enters the competition, you get three additional entries, which increases, you will understand, due to the laws of mathematics, your chances of winning. So please enter the competition if you're an actor in anything.com forward slash giveaway. One more thing. The Emerging Actors Roundtable in association with Spotlight Films in November. The application process for that also closes on Thursday, rather helpfully, at 6pm. If you are graduating in 2017, either from drama school or from university, or you've been in the industry for less than three years and didn't train at all, you are eligible to apply to be part of that roundtable, which will be chaired by me at Spotlight. Go to the website if you're interested in anything.com forward slash roundtable full details of how to apply on there. But you must get your application in by Thursday at 6. That's it. Cue music. My name's Joe McGann, and you are listening to the Honest Actors Broadcast. Podcast, even. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.